You know, don't you, that there are some very dangerous places in our world for someone to confess that they have a trust in Jesus. Uh, we had the guys from Open Doors come just a month ago. The reps from the Australian office asked if they could come and speak to us and not to present to a church service, so you may not have met them, but to a meeting of our church's missions committee, which happens just before our morning service. Um, They gave us their pitch, they told us about their organisation, and they invited us to partner with them in uh, the work that they do in supporting the persecuted church all around the world. And a story that they shared with us in our little meeting stayed with me, and I'll share it with you. They they talked to us about a lady called uh, Nadia, who is from Egypt, and back in 2017, just 40 days after Easter, the Egyptian Christians... Uh, our brothers over there, they, they celebrate what's called Ascension Day, which I don't think we do so much here in many of our church traditions. Ascension Day is 40 days after Easter. They celebrate the time of Jesus uh, leaving to go to his father after he was risen from the dead. And Nadia, this Egyptian woman and her family, they're on their way on Ascension Day to visit the monastery of St. Samuel, which is what a lot of people do. They, they visit a church on that day. Her extended family were visiting from the United States, so they were there too, and as they were going, they were in a bus, uh, driving up this road to St. Samuel's Monastery, and as they were going, she noticed out the window some men in military clothing uh, just a bit further up the road, and she first assumed that they were there as security forces to protect the monastery, uh, deployed to guard the road, but she was wrong. Because uh, these men in military clothing, uh, as they got closer and closer in their bus, they got into range and the men opened fire and shot out the tyres of the bus. And they climbed on board. Uh, these were Islamic State terrorists targeting Christians heading to the monastery. And so these men, they climbed onto the bus and starting from the front of the bus and moving to the back, they ordered each man at gunpoint to convert to Islam. But what the Egyptian Christians typically do, traditionally they have a tattoo of the cross on their wrist. It's sort of one of the things that's more of a cultural statement of belonging to the family of God if you're a Coptic Christian. So Nadia's son-in-law, who's sitting at the very front of the bus, is ordered to convert to Islam, to renounce his faith in Jesus. And he pulls down his sleeve to uncover his cross tattoo and says, no. I will not. I'm a Christian. And they shoot him. And so they go through each row of the bus, speaking to each man. And Nadia, she's sitting at the back of the bus. She sees them come to her son a few rows in front. And she sees her boy raise his wrist. And she hears his last words. No, I follow Jesus. And when they're done with all the men, uh, the terrorists leave. And after the event, in her account of what's happened, her reflection, uh, she says this. uh, She writes her words. Maybe you think I'd rather have seen my son make a different choice. And of course, as a mother, I'm terribly sad and I'm angry because I lost my son. But I am happy that I witnessed the faith that I raised in him. And I'm thankful that he wouldn't deny Christ 
even with his life in danger. He made the right choice, she says, and that is a comfort to me. That's Egypt, uh, just two years ago. Closer to home, you might have started feeling the unease and the sadness of living in a post-Christian Australia. It's not quite full-on danger here, but it's also not just an imagined threat. You might have felt the conservative values enshrined in laws which the church had a hand in establishing at the founding of this nation. Those values are shifting, have already shifted. And you and I know the church often finds itself on the not-majority on lots of matters with changes to the law in recent times, and that trend may well continue. You might imagine that it's a possible realistic threat that's on the horizon that might come into effect in our lifetime, if not in the lifetime of our children, that there might be tighter limits on the acceptable expression of our faith in the public sphere. And freedom of religion is probably not something to be taken as a given for too much longer. So whether it's on a global level with the atrocities that you hear about of Islamic State or scary totalitarian communist regimes or just at a local level with the tides of opinion shifting, there are some significant threats for the would-be follower of Jesus. And Jesus is aware of the dangers facing his disciples, is aware of what was facing them back then and is aware of the dangers facing us now. Uh, Our text for the day, John 17, picks off from where we left off last week. John 17 and starting at verse 6. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me there. We'll be spending most of our time in that passage. And where we jump back in is this final part of Jesus' last moments with his disciples before he's forcibly taken away to be crucified. And we find Jesus praying. We're up to the part, he's praying for his disciples and he's praying for their protection because he is well aware that very soon they're going to be in danger. You see how he prays in verse 6. You can read with me if you have it there. Jesus says, I have revealed, he's praying, I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer. But they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. So, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. Down to verse 12. While I was with them, Jesus says, I I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture will be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the fullest measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. 
Jesus has called a people to himself who now no longer belong to the world. They're now peculiar and treated as strangers to the system. They're now Jesus' people. And if the world isn't going to be a big fan of Jesus or God his Father, then they certainly aren't going to be fans of his church. And to a measure, Jesus says, I protected them, verse 12, while I was with them. But now he's about to be taken away. They're going to crucify Jesus, and he's not going to be around to help them anymore physically. Even after Jesus rises from the dead, Jesus doesn't stay with them, does he? For very long. He goes back to his father, leaving them and leaving us here in this world, waiting for his return. And Jesus is very aware his hour has come. He's not going to be physically there much longer to protect this group of disciples who he's called out of the world. And so he prays. And he prays not just for them, not just for those gathered in that upper room that night. He prays also for us, for you and me who belong to him. Look at verse 20, down to verse 20. Jesus continues, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. You see that? He thinks of us. Even way back then. I love that he thinks of us and that we get a mention in this so that we don't just have to imagine ourselves into the scene and what Jesus might be wanting us to apply from this. No, Jesus looks forward and he anticipates and sees us down the line. And so his prayer for protection is a prayer for us too. Remember that, remember that, won't you? That Jesus has prayed to his Father for you and for your protection. You need to know that, you need to be encouraged by that. But more than that, what I really want to point out to you from this passage is the kind of protection and the kind of danger Jesus has in mind when he's praying here. Because it's not what you might think. Yes, Jesus is well, well aware of the fact that the world will hate their disciples. He says as much in verse 14. Opposition will come not just from people, but from Satan too, who will try to undermine them and intimidate us where he can. And so consistently, Jesus' prayer comes back to one thing. Father, protect them, is what Jesus prays. But here he doesn't, protect the God, he doesn't pray that God will protect them from persecution. It's something else. Look at verse... Back to verse 11, John 17, 11. He says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. So, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Down to verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. The unity of the disciples is what Jesus is praying for. He would have them be protected like this. Protected from disunity as if that is the great danger. Keep them safe, Lord. Protect them by the power of your name that they may be one. Verse 11. 
You've seen stories of Jesus protecting his disciples' unity while he's with them. There's that account in Mark 10. And I'll have it brought up on the screen so that you can keep your page open at John 17. But um, it'll come up there. This is Mark chapter 10, verse 35. And this little incident that we have recorded there. Uh, It goes like this. Then James and John, two of his disciples, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. When the ten heard about this, the other disciples, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You might have observed this, but for some reason it seems when groups of people get together, Power and ego and ambition inevitably bubble to the surface. And the disciples weren't immune to it, just like we're not. And as we jostle for rank, and there's all different ways we do that, some subtle, some not so subtle, but when we play that game and we try to end up on top, at that moment we're not thinking about the good of the other. We're only interested in ourselves, which is anti-community. And the other ten disciples, they naturally get cranky at James and John for trying to give themselves a sneaky promotion ahead of everyone else. But Jesus squashes their infighting. He turns the whole paradigm upside down. And I think he protects their unity by doing that, teaching them that in his kingdom, it's humility that's the key. If you want to be great, then serve. And put everyone else's interests ahead of your own. The disunity is dangerous. But on the flip side, unity is powerful and glorious. I don't know how you came to faith, but I know for many people, a significant part of their journey to faith is the impact of the Christian community. You walk in amongst Christian people for the first time, And you get hit straight away by the difference that Jesus makes. And you see it in the way hopefully Christian people treat each other. Our belonging to each other and our belonging to God together is glorious and can be an incredible witness to Jesus when we do it right. I think that's what Jesus is talking about in John 17 verse 20. He says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message that... All of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. 
I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world would know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. We show the world another way other than the tribalism that seems to be growing in our city. Seems the growing pattern is that we stick to our own. We only really hang out with people who have the same opinions that we do. We, we, we speak with people who speak like us, who've come from the same part of the world, who have the same socioeconomic status. People more and more seem to be clumping according to their stages in life and where they sort of stand. And sure, we have to rub shoulders with different people at work and on the train, but the people who you let in into your life are not often people who challenge you with their differences. Not so in the church. At least I hope not. I hope we're trying to accept each other and trying to live out the unity that we have in Christ that isn't threatened by our diversity. So, for example, I hope that when a Christian person who's from Malaysia walks in through our door for the first time, that they don't feel welcome just because they run into other Malaysians here who speak with the same accent. I hope they feel at home here regardless of who they happen to have met because what they run into is the obvious love of God. What they run into is the familiar hope that we all share because of Jesus. So what, is, what unites us isn't our Malaysianness or our South Africanness or whatever ethnicity we might share. It's not what we try to do when we build rapport with people and talk about how we have children the same age or we go to the same school or we work in the same field or have the same tragedies before us. That's not how it works here. We are one because of Jesus, who's called us into his family. We've got to resist the urge to reinforce these barriers that Jesus has already broken down and deleted between us. For those temptations are real. And Satan will try to do whatever he can, I suspect, to undermine our unity. And we cripple ourselves in our witness and in our experience of the glory of God when we let Satan get his way. Let these things get between us that they really shouldn't. What Jesus prayed for is that we would be one. That we would be spared from the dangers and the mess of when we're not one. And I'd like to lead us in a prayer in a moment along the same vein. Asking our Father to protect us like this. In our personal relationships and our corporate life together, and how we relate to other Christians far and wide. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, we are sorry for our pride that too often stops us from relating to people like we should. We thank you that Jesus has made a way for us all to come back to you. And we thank you that just as now we have a restored relationship with you, our Heavenly Father, so at the same time you bring us into a new and restored way of relating to all those who call on Jesus' name. We thank you for the blessing of church. Protect us, Lord, in our unity. We pray in our conflicts with each other, particularly where someone's been wronged and hurt. We ask that you would teach us to be quick and willing to repent. 
and to be quick and willing to forgive. Help us learn to forgive each other as you forgave us. We pray that you protect our unity in the way we do corporate decision-making. As we try to discern your will, and we might have different opinions about what we think your will is, especially then, Lord, give us humility to listen to each other. And we pray that even as we disagree, you'd still allow us to bear with each other in love and to be gracious to each other as we discern together and as we look for wisdom and a way forward. Help us, Lord, to move together as one. Father, would you remind us to be gentle in how we treat members of our body who are weaker for whatever reason? Would you help us put into practice what we see in your word that would give greater honor to the parts of the body that appear weaker and less presentable? Give us the strength to care and to be bothered and to make time and to associate where we might otherwise be tempted to act like our world does. Um, Help us not to ignore the inconvenient. Keep us from that, Lord. And Father, we pray for our partnership with Eastwood Baptist Church. We thank you for the spirit of unity and humility that our leadership teams have enjoyed with each other so far. And please protect every member of our churches from pride and suspicion as we continue working on trying to partner with each other. Keep us, Lord, from the temptation to despise our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ if and when things don't go our way. Keep us from despising each other when things are moving too slow or too fast for our liking. We ask that you'd help us to keep in step with each other and in step with you and what your spirit is doing. And Father, we think of our family of churches across the Baptist movement, New South Wales and ACT, with all our different strengths and all the different peculiar emphases that different groups within our family of churches have. Help us to work together so that our differences might be gifts we have to bless each other with rather than occasions for discouragement and factionalism. And we pray the same for all those who call on your name across denominations. Help us to resist the urge to be petty and competitive. But Lord, help us to strengthen each other as we're able and to better reflect your glory as your people, that the sum of us would make the news of Jesus clearer. And finally, Father, we remember the persecuted church. Our brothers and sisters in situations of heavy persecution because of their trust in Jesus. As one body, we feel when parts of us are hurt. And we're proud when parts of us stand up faithfully for you, especially in the face of suffering. We ask that you'd help us to express the unity that we have in Christ in how we care for each other and how we stand with each other and how we encourage each other. May our world see the glory and the love of God in Christ as we display it in us and through us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.